This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Professional GMing. John Stonehouse. The Bell Epoch Met Gala. And Sahara Circles. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, and the crinkle of cold $20 bills welcome us into the gaming hut. <laughs> yes, this this gaming hut is running on a meter. It's running on a meter. Beloved Patreon backer Bill Durfee has put us on the meter by asking, what would you say to a potential new professional game master other than the obvious don't? Well, I mean, I don't know that I would say don't. I would say I doubt it, but, you know, people... Robin, I am the last person in the world to say you need to take your job prospect seriously to another person. <laughs> right. I just, those words would turn into butterflies and fall out of my mouth like in a Terry Gilliam movie. That's yes, what would happen. I'd be laughing more than usual. Exactly. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is first start out by deprioritizing whatever we say for the next 12 to 13 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and talk to people who've actually done it. Yeah, that would be an excellent start. Because, of course, uh, neither uh, Ken nor I has GM'd professionally. Occasionally, I, you know, will hear of someone who has that as their job and think, wait, could I make more running games for people than designing games for people? But that, I guess, would mean you're, you're working evenings and, uh, and weekends. So you're sort mm-hmm. of working musician's hours. So right. I guess that's the first bit of advice is, you know, can you live in a, in a schedule that is closer to that of an entertainer than, 
someone who works nine to five. I mean, so. I guess in theory, you could run evenings and weekends just in vastly different time zones. Yeah. So I guess North Americans could run for Europeans in the mm-hmm. afternoon. Yeah. But I have been paid to game master, but it was, it's, it's a very one-off sort of a thing. It's, it's, you know, uh, I, I long ago, I did a, a cult tours of Chicago that was organized by our buddy Tavis Allison in the early days when we all thought the internet would be a good thing. And I, I did a little walking tour of Chicago. Then I ran a Call of Cthulhu event for paying customers. And it did not turn into my career for many, many reasons. And I guess the thing that is different about that is that it's it's more resembles convention gaming in my mind. At least this did because it was a one shot. And that means that you are very much about making sure that everyone gets their goodies that the system gets its best face worked out. All the things that we've talked about previously about running con games, I think maybe is the advice that Bill could go back and listen to. Unless, of course, he's talking about being paid to run a campaign for people, in which case, once more, we have no advice. Right. And listen well, I, to I think that is people. what professional GMs are doing now. Mm-hmm. And, and this goes, you know, way back. It's not such a new thing there. I know, of, you know, one uh, group of people who pooled their resources to, uh, put their Ars Magica GM on basically a full-time payroll to do all of the research and everything required to run the best personal version of that. There are famously uh, Hollywood celebrities who have their childhood uh, DM in their entourage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are lots of people who I think increasingly are looking at, well, this is a form of entertainment that I really enjoy. I want to spend my gaming time in the best possible experience and, I'm willing to pay for it. And mm-hmm. so the question is, what exactly are people willing to pay for and how do you deliver that? And I think the Ars Magica example is, I think, pointing us in the right direction is I would think that people are, first of all, looking for someone to do a lot of prep work. So, for example, I'm not sure you're going to get anyone to pay you to GM a drama system campaign for you, even though <laughs> uh, jamming that is a subtle art. But the, I think the question that people will have is, you know, that makes very light demands on the GM. Why do I need to pay someone to do that? So uh, I think you're, first of all, looking at the realm of very high prep games that are improved by spending a lot of extra time in them. And so that takes us into the realm of uh, crunchier rule sets, into GURPS and champions. It takes us into things with uh, really involved settings, uh, particularly historical settings uh, like uh, Ars Magica or or so forth, or uh, just something where, you know, there's a saying in movie going that people want to see the money up on the screen. Mm-hmm. And I think what people are going to most of all look for from you is to see your prep work up on the screen. So that even if it's something, you know, relatively easy to run, like a modern day gumshoe game, I would think people would expect a lot more bells and whistles in terms of handouts and you doing image research to have right. uh, images of everything ready to go. Visual aids. Lots of lots of floor plans, I would think. Floor plans. Uh, lots of music, mm-hmm. if that's part of it. So you're probably looking at a way of trying to make it as much of a kind of a multimedia experience as you can without turning it into something other than a tabletop game. Now, I know a friend of mine, uh, game designer Colin Kyle, is currently teaching therapists Dungeons and Dragons by means of playing Dungeons and Dragons with them. Because apparently role-playing therapy is now a thing. Who knew? We have turned the corner, uh, as Paracelsus would say, from a poison to a cure. And so 
that is a sort of a different model of being a professional GM in that I don't think that they're necessarily paying for Colin's excellent research and superb visual flair. They're more paying for understanding the rules over the course of the game. And that's, uh, and that would be a, you know, another option or another thing that you might find yourself doing. And I could see that being a group if they're a sort of, let's imagine the best group ever, a bunch of rich gaming dilettantes and they, and they hear about a new game and they're like, Oh, we want to play that. Make our hired GM run it. And maybe they might run drama system because they've heard about it. And maybe it's not a thing where, you know, they expect a huge amount of uh, GMing sparkle in the drama system. They're paying the GM to take on the cognitive load of learning a whole bunch of different game systems over and over again. And that might be another possible avenue and another possible market segment that you could pursue, right? Right. Which brings to the question of market research, right? That either you have have already found a group of people who are interested in hiring a GM and uh, in terms of how to find people who want a GM, you know, how to find your group as a pro GM, you're really going to have to go to someone who's doing it already to get that advice aside of specifically you know, put together a group of people who want to pay you. But if you, assuming you have a group of people who want to pay somebody, which I think is at least as often the case, the thing is to really know what it is that they want. And they may have something very specific in mind. It's like, we want you to run Masculinolathotep. We've always wanted to run that. We want someone who's really great at that. So, you know, we've heard you're good at Call of Cthulhu or can become good at that. Uh, We want that. We want the ultimate version of that. And that's very clear cut, very obvious. I think a lot of cases, just as, you know, D&D is the biggest game, uh, I think the most people who are uh, asking for have this run are looking for uh, a D&D, but, you know, which D&D are they looking for? And I don't mean what edition, but what sort of experience, because right. my ultimate piece of advice for all GMing, which is to know what your play group wants as a collective and give it to them, and also make sure that within that there are moments when you give each participant, what they're looking at here, that is your job is to know what they want and to be able to deliver that. And I think part of that over time will be developing a sense of how to get people to articulate what it is that they want versus uh, what they say that they want, Uh, because those two things are not always the same, right? You may have, you know, someone say, have a very dominant player, the one who organized it, got the rest of the group together, he, that person might be, yeah, Masks and Arlathotep, we want that run, we want it run by the book, uh, we want to make sure that uh, we do it in this order and that, and then it may be that the other players are like, oh, I don't know, I wouldn't mind a side trip to some other thing, or I'd like some something more improv heavy or whatever, so the uh, that's the most important thing in any game, here you're getting paid to know that, and uh, it's often the, the trickiest thing, because uh, People are not always as aware of what it is that they're looking for. Uh, And so that's a matter of constantly paying attention to what it is that they're doing, how they're responding, and to give them more of the things that they respond to. And to also, I think you're going to have, speaking of therapy, you're going to have more of a responsibility to manage the group dynamic. Because if you've just got a group of friends over, you know, if there's conflict within the group, that's just sort of, oh, well you know, people are at loggerheads or whatever. But if if you've got, you know, these are your clients and they're arguing with each other, you have, I think, more of a challenge to sort of smooth that out and keep the group not only happy with what you're doing, but happy with each other. Yeah, the um, the sort of 
it, it takes the, the standard sort of sensitivity and flexibility of a GM and the creativity, but I would assume it also takes a certain degree of being able to distance yourself from the material that's not going to be present at a home game or a friend's game because you are doing it to spec. You're doing it what they want. And I don't think that anyone yet, maybe Satine Phoenix or somebody is being hired for their specific aesthetic. But, you know, if someone comes and they say, I want to run, you know, Pathfinder, you don't get to say, well, we're going to set it in, you know, Arthurian Britain. It better be set in Galerion, by golly. And there'd better be exactly as many war forged or whatever kind of crazy Pathfinder things show up. And it's not necessarily, you're not the sole auteur of the, of the game in, in a way that you might be able to be at a, at a friend's table where they're like, well, let's just see, let's give Ken his head, see what happens. You know, the, the players might say, well, we're paying for this. We have notes. We have thoughts. We'd like, you know, more kissing and less uh, archery or more psionics rules and less bugbears or whatever, right? That they have specific inputs and you need to be able to take those on board because that is now suddenly your rent money in a way that you can blow off if your friends are like, I didn't like all that, all that orcs. I wanted, you know, more bugbears. It's like, well, too bad. You went to orc forest. That's not my problem. Suddenly it is your problem. Right. Unless I suppose you have an oversupply of potential players, because you could I, I go the other direction completely, which is like, I'm going to deliver the ultimate OSR experience. I'm going to, uh, this is a survival run. I'm a punitive uh, DM from 1982, except in the present day. And uh, this is, uh, you know, a matter of survival as to whether you lie face down in the mud. My games are tough. My GMing is rough. I use all the encumbrance rules. No pikers need apply. Or, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, for example, I would imagine that if you did decide to do that, people wouldn't want you to be delivering their, you know, default experience as much as they want the ultimate or tour game. So it, it may be, you know, it, if you can pull it off, if you have that authority, <laughs> it might be, I'm going to deliver exactly this sort of game. If this is for in the weeds champions players who still have their slide rules that they used to figure out champions rules initially, this is the you know, the down and dirty version of this, and you've got to bring 16 pounds of D6s and, uh, you know, whatever it is, you could pitch it as a very specific experience. Yeah, it's like a gaming boot camp. Right. Or, you know, going to, you know, eat at a restaurant where they're sort of mean to you, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, they they, they have their their prefix menu, and it's like, well, if you don't like French organ meat cooking, then you need to go to a different, worse restaurant. Right. And I suppose a way that you could promote yourself that way is if you are less interested in finding, you know, having a group come to you and say, this is what we want, but rather that you are, you know, delivering a particular auteur experience. I guess one thing to do would be to do an actual play, put mm-hmm. it up on YouTube, Yep. you know, get ringers, have them all together. And that's your audition tape, right? It's like, yeah, do you demo want, reel. Uh, yeah. Do you want this super spooky vampire game that I've run or, you know, this amazing nobilis game uh, this game experience can be yours. You can be in this. And I think that would be, you know, or whether it's a podcast or whether it's a video, whatever is within your AV capabilities uh, to have something that's a, a calling card that you can put forth as, you know, you're going to get this, except it'll be you in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I assume that as the market expands and matures, that will suddenly start being a viable situation. And we'll start seeing that. And maybe, uh, again, you're you're dealing with people who are 
not necessarily have their thumbs on that segment of, of the hobby, maybe we're close to that now. And I, I, I assume that in certain quarters of D and D, there are senses of, you know, not just, Oh, Matt Mercer, uh, but you have certain other celebrity GMs who will run, you know, for money and you have a sense of, of what that means. And I feel like, as this sort of version of the hobby grows and again becomes a, a you know, a, a, an industry, a profession, um, you are going to start seeing market segmentation just like you do with restaurants, just like you do with concerts. You know, no one just goes to concert. They go to the concert by a specific band, or at least they've heard, oh, this is the new Electro Clash band. I haven't heard of them, but I like Electro Clash. I'm going to go see what's up. And so you have, you'll, you'll see that kind of segmentation, I assume, is going to just start taking over the, you know, and, and becoming more and more of a thing. I just don't know that we're there yet because I feel like if that were a thing, I would maybe have heard of it. Maybe not. I don't know. Right. Uh, Cause it may get to the point where, you know, you, you put up a pitch mm-hmm. of what your game is like and uh, describe, you know, the sort of players you're looking for and uh, you know, the whole premise and everything you may have, you know, you may be like uh, an opera singer who goes from company to company singing the, roles that are in your repertoire it's like mm-hmm. you know you do carmen everywhere well you have this one super great cyberpunk campaign that you run for you know 15 uh, episodes and it's legendary and people talk about it and uh you know you can get in on the next run sort of thing so yeah. i guess the ultimate point of advice is that this is such a young area uh, where there's a you know potential that people have money they want to spend it they want to have this form of entertainment that uh, you can, you know, be an innovator and, and, you know, establish exactly how it is that it works. You can be, you know, Bill can be the, you know, possibly the, a pioneer of a, a particular way of, of doing it. And, and ultimately, jamming is a creative artistic expression. And the main thing is to ignore any piece of advice that doesn't feel right for you, right? Yeah. If you're, if you are a low prep DM, but people love your games because of all the byplay and the sort of anarchic spirit and the fact that it can go anywhere at any time. And therefore, you know, a handout is the last thing that you would have for people. If that's your specialty, play that up. But you just have to make sure that there's a match, that, that that's what people are looking for and expect when they uh, show up uh, or where, where you show up at their house <laughs> with yeah. your game or whether you all are logging in together at the same time, whether it's something that happens you know, electronically or in person. It's about whether you are getting the expectations from them or creating the expectations. It's about uh, fulfilling them and doing that every time out. And that sounded to me, Robin, like a summary. And as you know, when things get summary here in the hut, we go outside and bask in a commercial. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could 
you gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact... Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled... Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time to take a retinal scan and to undergo a background check, because once more, we're going into the top-secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, Ken, we're going to look at the story of John Stonehouse. Uh, he was a British MP who uh, provided a bit too much information to an outside source and wound up uh, having a very interesting biography as a result. So... Uh, Ken, tell us all about John Stonehouse. Okay. John Stonehouse is born in Southampton in 1925. His parents are union officials, or at least his dad is, I guess. And then he gets into uh, developing and running co-ops is his thing. And there's a brief sort of a wave of the co-op party, I guess, that, uh, of, of course, like most parties do, funneled into labor. He winds up becoming elected a labor MP in 1957 after running two or three other times and failing. And shortly thereafter, the Czechoslovak spy service, the STB, uh, notes him out as a ambitious labor politician with left-wing opinions and a loose grasp on morality and money. <laughs> so they think this seems like a guy. And in 1959, they recruit him under the codename Colon. His nickname is given, or his codename is given, because at the time he was uh, very vocal in anti-colonial politics. He was trying to get Britain to liberate their various colonies, especially the ones in Africa, and was very, very mad at Rhodesia, like many people in the Labor Party and elsewhere were. And it seemed to be, you know, bacon and eggs, a match maiden, well, not heaven per se, but in the basement of some hideous prison in Prague. And he, sure enough, he, he signs up, uh, gets 500 pounds a year. And as he rises through the ranks of parliament, he begins by just raising questions in the house that the Czech government once asked. Then he starts turning over briefings on British Africa policy. Uh, there's a note in the files like met with Colon, got a very informative summary of the situation in Tanganyika. So it's that kind of thing. And then he becomes junior minister for air and he starts being able to provide aviation technology to the Czechoslovakians. He rises, as I mentioned, through the ranks. Uh, the, the Wilson government is in power for a good long time. He becomes a junior minister for air and then minister for state for technology in 1967. And now that he's in the cabinet, he's privy to even more secret information. So the Czechs raise his pay to 1,500 pounds a year. So have you done a, an inflation comparison to give us a, a sense of what 1,500 pounds was uh, back in the day compared to now? Is this a lavish amount of money or just sort of a side hustle for him? I mean, right around that time, 1,500 pounds would be something in the neighborhood of 75 
thousand bucks, maybe something in that area, maybe sixty thousand. So none too shabby. Not, I mean, it's not bad, but it's not. It but seems it's, like it's a second income level. Yeah, which... right. Yeah, it's it's definitely side gig money, no question. And and of course, he would have only been making a third of that when he got first recruited. So that's like you know you know yard work money, twenty five hundred bucks maybe or twenty five thousand bucks. You must have an expensive yard. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm saying if you have a yard work sideline, not just right, getting no. your yard done, right. Where were we? Anyway, as now that he's in the cabinet, he's getting looked at more by MI5. And people are saying, you agree with Czechoslovakia a lot in the House. Uh, he becomes the Postmaster General in 1969, and then an eventually Minister of Post and Telecoms after they decide Postmaster General is an old name and we don't want it. And it's right around then, ironically, I guess, that he sort of stops spying. He just stops showing up for meetings with his control because the Postmaster General used to be the head of the English Domestic Spy Service, although by then it had been spun off to the good old MI5, who, sure enough, just uh, in perfect MI5 form, now that he's stopped spying, says, you're a spy. <laughs> right. And and just to go back to the Postmaster General being in charge of spying, that seems weird until you remember that historically spying was about opening mail. Mm-hmm. As we discussed in the Third in Texas yep. episode a while ago. So anyway, MI5 accuses him of being a Czech spy. And he gets up on his hind legs and his dignity and he says, how very dare you. You can follow me around all day. I'll never meet with a Czech spying handler uh, because he'd stopped. Yeah. And I so then you, sir. I haven't done that in a couple of years. Right. Yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, I used to be a spy. Who didn't? No, he was he was very uh, steamed about that. And then the conservatives won a surprise victory in 1970. And he's suddenly out of government. And now he really has nothing to offer the Czech Secret Service. He starts a number of private businesses, which, of course, all fail. I don't want to, you know, dance on this guy's grave necessarily, but haha. And that, of course, leads him to start committing a series of frauds which enmesh him to the degree he's being investigated by inland revenue and by other people, treasury. And so he fakes his death in Miami. He uh, leaves his clothes on a beach and sneaks off and makes it look like he'd gone for a a midnight swim and been eaten by a shark. And uh, there's, you know, obituaries everywhere of beloved, handsome, young John Stonehouse who, you know, flew too close to the sun as junior aviation minister, etc. Right. And the complicated part of faking your own death mm-hmm. is not the part where you leave your clothes on the beach and seem to have been eaten by a shark, but then who you're able to become afterwards. Right. And and that's where I, I suppose being a former postmaster might have come in handy in terms of getting uh, IDs and so forth. But it's the, the number of people who've successfully, I guess we don't know who successfully, you know, uh, fake their own. Yeah, death. right. Like, it could be more really than we hard think. to actually do outside of thriller literature. But anyway, he took the identity of one of his constituents' deceased husbands, Joseph Markham. And that, I suspect, being Postmaster General might have helped him, you know, build up an identity in a docket. And he sneaks off to Australia with his mistress, who is also his secretary, Sheila Buckley. Um, I've passed over the no doubt endless affairs that he had uh, cheating on his wife all the time because I don't have a lot of details about them, but the Czechs certainly seem to think he had a lot of them and I guess they would know. Right. And and if you've ever read John Le Carre, it is the main other thing that British spies do is have affairs. Exactly. So he winds up sneaking into Australia and begins trying to get money out of various bank accounts that he's set up under false names. But sadly, a teller, 
who was at the Bank of New Zealand and saw him deposit money there, also spotted him at the Bank of New South Wales trying to get money and thought, why is this man named uh, Mildoon, was the name he was depositing the money under, why is this man moving money around between banks that are like across the street from each other? So she looked into it and discovered that the money was in uh, the name of Joe Markham, remember his constituent's dead husband, and she said, this guy's got a fake name, she calls the cops on him, the cops think that he is Lord Lucan, who had also vanished at roughly the same period and had been suspected of scampering off. Okay, and so you briefly need to tell people who Lord Lucan was. Right. Well, Lord, we did a whole segment on Lord Lucan, but Lord Lucan was a playboy and a gambler and rake hell and uh, very handsome and fancy and uh, murdered his nanny and uh, vanished in November of 1974. So just two weeks before Stonehouse vanished. Right. So if you're going to fake your own death, don't do it right when there's an even bigger international fugitive running around. Right. Who's also uh, an uppity Brit of some sort. So anyway, they thought, hmm, maybe this guy is Lord Lucan. They write away for uh, pictures of Lord Lucan. And someone else said, hmm, this guy, when we followed him around, he, he was really interested in that missing British MP, the dead John Stonehouse, read a lot of obituaries of that guy. I wonder if there's a connection there. So when they're writing away, they said, also send us a picture of John Stonehouse. So when they get him, they have him take down his pants because apparently they could identify Lord Lucan thusly, which I guess tells you what kind of a guy Lord Lucan was. Well, he has a scar on his leg. It's not quite that and, exciting. Oh, fine. Spoil it. Anyway, he is arrested and identified as Stonehouse. He decides not to resign from Parliament and Labour doesn't throw him out because they need the vote. He is tried in 1976 and convicted of fraud, wasting police time, theft, and forgery, and he gets tossed into prison on a seven-year sentence. Then, he doesn't like prison at all. He complains about the pop music being played in the prison uh, refectory, for one thing. And also, he has a number of heart attacks, because I guess it's very stressful to be John Stonehouse in prison. Well, you know, the, the class structure just completely falls apart in prison. Right, it, it, it does. And when you're a labor MP being thrown into an actually classless society, it's you don't need that. Um, that that's horrible. So he is released in 1979, Compassionate Release, and then he starts writing spy novels as an attempt to sort of come back, and he for sure dies in 1988. I should note uh, that his daughter, Julia, who... Quite frankly, I think shows more filial affection than is warranted, says that uh, all the spy allegations are a frame up by the racist MI5. And when someone says, what about the 500 page dossier on him in the STB archives? She says that is a forgery. And I personally don't buy that for a second, but I figured Julia has gone out there looking like a, an idiot uh, defending her dad. So the least I can do is is throw her theory a bone here. Right. And, and she's written a book about yes, she has. him from her perspective. And his, I think, great nephew or nephew has written another book saying, oh, no, he was a total spy and also all kinds of other bad things. So there's a family uh, squabble as to whether or not uh, John Stonehouse was uh, scum or just of the earth. So his spy career, the actual spy part, not the, mm -hmm. the fun faking his own death part, occurs in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. How do we... Uh, get him into a uh, fall of Delta Green. I think there's a couple of different ways. First of all, obviously, 
He's doing aviation technology. He's part of the Postmaster General's office. He's connected to Africa. He's obviously one of the oversight members of Pisces, the uh, British version of Delta Green. And this can be your opportunity to uh, have either a, a, a GRU SV-8 mole in Pisces, or it can be that a whole other intelligence service is saying, what is this secret British organization? And that that's what he's, you know, yielding up. And then it's after the dangerous and bad raid on Goatswood that uh, he pulls out and, and gets away from Pisces and then dumps his handler. And he says, this is too real, too serious. He's been exposed to the Shan. Uh, he, he knows that trouble's ensuing. And maybe that's why he actually faked his death is to try to get away from the Shan who were, you know, uh, pursuing him and, and homing in on him. And well, Because we know the Shan are not big on paperwork. So no. they would be more easily fooled than... The uh, Australian banking authorities. Well, I mean, also, he, he's like halfway around the world, and they're like, well, what happened? We don't right. understand. Yes, they, they don't travel by sea. That's not no, a Shan thing. That's not a Shan thing. They're, they're, they're insects. They, they tire their little selves out flying across the Atlantic. Yeah, so if you're going to escape from a Cthulhu Mythos entity, try escaping from one of the very, very small ones. Yes, one of the small, <laughs> easily discouraged ones. Yeah. Uh, but maybe fleeing to Australia is not your ideal move. Just going to throw that out there. But anyway, that's that. if I were putting him in, um, I would use him as the way to bring in whatever sort of East Block bad guys I wanted as, um, you know, they, they have to trust Stonehouse or Stonehouse is overseeing an operation that they're running or is somehow part of it. And then that's the way that that information gets fed to either, you know, some secret, uh, what I call the ultraviolet directive of the, of the KGB, or it goes to GRUSV8 if you want to keep your entities down uh, to a bare minimum. But if you wanted communists, John Stonehouse is how you get communists. Well, once you've got communists to shoot at your Delta Green agents, uh, I think uh, we've done our job here and can move on to whatever lies on the other side of this beautiful handcrafted commercial. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Ensure that this podcast never has to fake its own death by throwing in with such beloved Patreon backers as... Ryan McClelland. Michael Curtis. Ryan Mannix. Scott Jones. And Scott Stefanski. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. 
beloved Patreon backer Joe Webb asks, The Met Gala theme for 2022 was Gilded Glamour, inspired by the Gilded Age, the U.S. experience of the Belle Epoque period. Jared Leto with a doppelganger, Rihanna as living statue, etc. How would you incorporate the Met Gala in a This Is Normal Now scenario in a King in Yellow game? Could it leak into other eras? And did your head explode from the irony? Uh, Robin, I can say nothing rich liberal celebrities do can make my head explode from the irony. It's all baked in there now. Right. And it certainly didn't make my head explode that the year that HBO has a new show called The Gilded Age, that Anna Wintour <laughs> would decide somehow magically through some <laughs> process of cross promotion to do a Gilded Age uh, Met Gala. But that's actually a great idea anyway, because the clothes from that era are so uh, spectacular and sort of the beginning of, you know, recognizable Evening clothing wear, yeah. that can still be worn. And and I also have to say that I'm not mad at the Met Gala for existing. The, the Metropolitan Museum of Art needs to have funds uh, raised for it. And Any institution that provides pictures of Rihanna is doing God's work. That's I'll just say that right now. Yeah, and if people want to look at cool pictures of celebrities in cool, fashionable clothing uh, at a time of horror and stress in the world, I say, go for it, Anna Wintour. And I should also say that my favorites of the outfits were the ones that actually closely referred to, in some way, the fashion of the Belle Epoque. And uh, some did that more interestingly than others. <laughs> as uh, others seem to be dressed up as monsters in the Yellow yeah. King, which is also cool. But for example, uh, Blake Lively, who, first of all, you know, already just gets a pass because she's married to Canada's sweetheart. But mm -hmm. her outfit really, you know, her design team really worked on looking at the references, doing something that would be super cool. There's a theatrical reveal where the train was taken off. So that was, you know, uh, th those were among my favorites. Bella Hadid. Blake, Blake Lively does the homework. I think yes. that's what we can say about Blake Lively. And, you know, others, you know, they phoned it in, but there you go. Yeah. So the question is how to incorporate this into a normal now scenario. And, Obviously, that, that just sort of writes itself as it somehow the uh, investigators who are sort of normal people, but maybe they have a connection with a, an influencer or, you know, it turns out that they're uh, actually, you know, Pete Davidson's second cousin or something. Or they or they have gig economy. They have to, you know, stand there holding trays. Yeah, but they, you know, figure out either at the event or because, you know, if you at least go a couple of scenarios into the campaign, they know there's something that about them that kind of relates to people from the Belle Epoque period and they know to be alert for this and they might even know that the play itself was first published in 1895 so their antenna may be going and they get you know sense of some sort of weirdness that's about to happen at the ball and they can look at costumes from other years and say oh these are kind of disjunctive and reality shattering and this outfit from a couple of years ago looks like that monster we've fought uh, last week. So bringing them in, the instigating incident is just to let them know that the event exists and that it has mm -hmm. a, 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 and of course you wouldn't just say Gilded Age, you'd say it's the, the King in Yellow theme or, mm -hmm. you know, or the Casilda or the Camilla or whatever, and make a, an obvious reference. And then the question is just, you know, what exactly is it that happens at this big event where the main thing is, you know, getting your picture taken and then there's a dinner and so forth. And, uh, is the main thing about the uh, images being taken and transmitted all around the world? Is this a covert way of transmitting the, the play? So is it the uh, the red carpet that you have to disrupt? Or 
Is it something that happens at the party or, you know, even worse, the after party? Uh, and uh, <laughs> after yeah, this the is after your party. chance to sort of bring in the kind of eyes wide shut imagery that is a natural fit with mm -hmm. uh, the Yellow King. So the only question, I think, is whether you want to subvert what the obvious threat is, because he, you know, the, the obvious move, of course, is the eyes wide shut. A whole bunch of celebrities turn out to be, uh, you know, in the... Uh, the claws of the king and the princesses, and uh, they're about to somehow enact some opening to Carcosa, or is there some other different twist on it? You know, is it is there going to be a uh, a gargoyle attack on uh, Kim Kardashian or uh, or what have you? <laughs> I thought we agreed we weren't going to talk mean about Pete Davidson. Anyway, there is also the fact that the you know the original source material is just rife with time slips. It's in Court of the Dragon. It's in Repair of Reputations. It's in Demoiselle Dees. It's in all over it. What better place to have a time slip, as I believe Joe Webb alludes when he says, could it leak into other eras than this? And maybe the thing is that there's enough specific Casildan gravity or Carcosan gravity at this event that there is time slips. And so, oh, no, there's a real honest to God Met Gala from 1895 happening right now also in this building and it's sort of flowing back and forth. And so you're seeing that's an amazingly beautiful woman, but I haven't seen her on, you know, the cover of uh, us weekly. Who is it? And you investigate and it's, it's one of the Gibson girls and, and you've never heard of her because she was famous for, you know, 45 seconds in 1895 and then vanished or it's Lily Langtree. I don't know. And so it can be not that the goal is to stop the gargoyles or even seal the breach by destroying the Met Gala, their goal might be, oh, we know we have an unsolved mystery from 1895. This is our opportunity to solve it, to figure out what's going on. And you salt it as one of the people that they see as someone that they recognize from the 1895 Paris adventure. And it's like, oh, it's that guy that we never were able to help or were never able to, you know, figure out what he was up to. And that's your goal. And you're taking advantage of this very dangerous Carcosan event but it's like you're slingshotting your way around a black hole. You're not trying to get into the black hole. That would be awful. But you can use its power to do something that you wanted investigatively or, you know, maybe even, you know, time travel back to New York in 1895 if you wanted to use that as the as the uh, inciting incident for a, a, a brief New York lobe where you right. go to Washington Square and hang out with Chambers. And if you're going to actually go back to the Belle Epoque, mm -hmm. you can open a door and find yourself at the... Ball de Cotz Arts in uh, Paris, which is the art students ball mm -hmm. that, you know, if you were clever enough, you've already established as a thing. This is a, the event thrown by the faculty and uh, and students of the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. And in 1893, it's a thing that uh, provokes rioting in the student quarter, the Latin quarter of Paris, when a uh, famous model is, uh, is arrested by the cops for uh, what she's wearing or not wearing on, on the Lady Godiva float. Mm -hmm. And so you could open the a particular door and be at that event a couple of years later, which might or might not be at the Moulin Rouge that year. And you could run into your previous characters. And this would be, you know, your opportunity to have like a crossover event where you're, you know, you split up the party and you're still with yourselves, right? It's like you can mix everything up and, you know, why just bring in one sequence. So, you know, you go through another door and an officer's ball for the French general staff in 1947. And during the Continental War, you're well behind the scenes. But of course, uh, you know, everything is fragmenting and dropping into each other. And so there you go. You can meet your 
uh, characters from the wars. And, you know, uh, your aftermath characters, of course, are uh, just, you know, you're even in, in the same chronological date as them. So uh, you could, you know, maybe down in the sub-basement, you could go down there and there's a, a wild a party for the uh, heroes of the revolution who are being uh, yeah, celebrated. Yeah, that's the after party. Is It, it joins the, the aftermath party. Exactly. Right. Uh, so that you could uh, use this as a premise to, you know, wind all of your uh, characters together. And this could be where they all discover that they uh, have to band together in their uh, different time periods to, uh, you know, solve a, a, a problem or, or fight Carcosa in a way that uh, requires their combined efforts. And once you've got four sets of player characters all teaming up, that, that's too many for one segment. So it's time for us to uh, go through yet another door, uh, not hopefully to Carcosa, but ideally to another hut and or segment. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. Well, let's, there's a hut. Let's go on in. Let's see what kind of hut it is. Uh, hmm, it's an ill-defined hut. It's a hut that I'm not quite sure was on the boundary of psychic powers and uh, strange theories about history, but, oh, wait a minute. I'm looking out a window. I'm seeing an alien big cat screaming out on the moor, and over in the corner there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're drinking a kombucha together. It gives us a little nod. That tells us, obviously, we're in, in the Elliptony hut, where... Uh, mysteries without definition exist. And this time around, uh, beloved Patreon backer Michael Gamar uh, says, a series of weird circular features in the Sahara, far from human habitations, has been uh, discovered straight along a line of latitude visible from space, but undetected until now. Sure, there turns out to be an alleged mundane explanation, but... So, Ken, this is exciting to me that people are discovering uh, new things, to, to get concerned about Google Earth has been a great source of uh, people. Yeah, if, you, uh, if you thought the Viking photographs were great, Google Earth, it, yes. it's like, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like uh, the moon, that doesn't have decent weird mysteries on it compared to us. We got lots of weird mysteries. And Ken, in this case, so what are these mysterious markings that must surely have been created by a denizen of the Elliptony hut? What they are is they're basically, they resemble watch faces. So from the satellite, you see that it looks like a little hole in the Sahara Desert surrounded by 12 smaller holes. And that whole circle is 42 meters in diameter. And there are 22 of these watch faces, each of them 420 meters apart in a straight line uh, running east to west. So it's about nine kilometers long and it's straddling four degrees, 20 minutes east 
which is what made the original Redditor who spotted it think, this is some sort of weed-based joke that I've found, and it's just a thing that the satellite company put in to celebrate 420. But no, it's not. They talked to the satellite company guy, uh, they being Vox, and uh, the satellite company guy says, nope, this has been in these pictures all the way through. It's not a artifact. It's not a prank. It's a real thing. And the real thing, by the way, I guess we should mention, is in Algeria, central Algeria, it's 87 miles east of the city or town, depending on what you consider a population 30,000 settlement in Algeria to be. Ain Salah goes all the way back to, uh, at the very least, the Middle Ages, probably a little bit before that. It's one of the original trans-Saharan trade towns, because Ain Salah means good water. And that's what it is. It's on the side of an oasis, a well. By the way, the water is not good. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> so did it used to be good, or is it one of those uh, Greenland, Iceland, throw you off the scent things? I, I think it's one of those good-for-the-Sahara-type waters, as opposed to actually good. Well, any water is good in the Sahara. Any water is good. Put your belly aching was the original name, and then they changed it to Ain Salah uh, once the uh, Arabs took over. But the area out there is... Basically, in the middle of nowhere, it's 24 hours drive from Algiers. If you uh, were moved to go there, uh, which you probably aren't, 44 miles further east, there is a pair of tumuli, ancient tombs, each surrounded by concentric circle earthworks, and that's at Tabal Balet, and those were discovered in 1881 by a, a French explorer, and uh, the French explorer was going to look for the the fate of the British exploration team that went out there earlier and all got killed by the uh, Touareg. And so they found the tumuli. Classic player character thing. You go and find out what the previous investigators were up to, and right. then you lost the big fight at the end. But, but not the, uh, I, I forget if it's the Flattery, I think it, it was, the Flattery expedition. So that's good fun. So anyway, big mystery. Nobody knows what it was. They thought it might have been uh, ancient waterworks. They thought it might have been, you know, more tumuli, uh, weird petroglyphs. We're not too far from the Tassili, the, the big uh, complex of, of rocks and cliffs in uh, closer to southern Algeria, around Tamanrasset, that has petroglyphs going all the way back to seven and 10,000 BC. So maybe it was, you know, earth art like in Nazca. Who can say? Well, eventually, the Vox guy uh, pestered a Algerian photojournalist into driving out there with an Algerian archaeologist, and they found the watch faces, and they found uh, that there was dynamite under them, and they were saying, well, that became a much more dangerous operation than just <laughs> looking at these the dynamite. watch faces. You were not told there was dynamite, but they also found sardine cans littering the ground. So and obviously, ancient astronauts. Ancient astronauts who were into sardines. And dynamite. So the, the veil out, the theory that Vox, and I obviously, if Vox has come up with the theory, we know it can't be true, is that it was a French oil combine called Kreps that had the oil license to this area, went out and planted their dynamite in circles to set it off and create a detonation wave that they could then pick up with a seismograph to determine is there oil underneath this stretch of the Sahara. And they talked to a sardine can collector who dated their can thanks to his collection of being around 1958. Right. And you think forensic entomology is an overly specific investigative right. ability. Yes. Sardine can analysis nails the date. So we know that between 57 and 58, 
there was a team of French oil explorers, petroleum engineers, that went out and set off a bunch of dynamite in the Sahara Desert. Right. Nothing to see here. Move along. Right. And we know they didn't find oil because if they had, there'd be derricks all over. Right. There'd be, you would have known because there would be, you know, a bunch of uh, oil company guys in Ein yeah. Salah instead Algeria's of... Algeria's geopolitical power would have radically increased. Well, it's already geopolitically very powerful because they did find oil and gas all over Algeria. And that was, uh, that's one of the reasons that Algeria basically gets to do what it wants in North Africa, unlike other places. So... Anyway, the period of the late 50s in Algeria is right after the big UFO flap in Algeria between 52 and 54. The Tassili rock art that I mentioned previously does depict spacesuits. And speaking of Google Earth visual anomalies, there is a very cool uh, pentagram looking thing. It looks almost like Starro. It's a big pentagram with a big eye sort of thing in the middle of it. And it's 80 miles northwest of Um al-Assel, which is way across Algeria on the very far west side of the country near the Moroccan border. It's known as the Nissanian pentagram by people who name pentagrams. And fun ruiners call it a volcanic plug. But I think you and I know that between the UFO flap, Tassili spacesuits, possible Bronze Age tumuli in Tabalbalat, and an Asanian pentagram, well, you know, do I have to draw you a picture, Robin? Right. So the question is, why did aliens decide to make sure there was no oil there anymore? And the answer is, it's a big, vast landing strip area. It's nice and flat. It's uh, relatively uninhabited, relatively unobserved. And so when they're planning their invasion, they want a nice big area that they can drop into, use as their staging ground. And they would have a lot more eyes on them if the uh, Algerian oil industry was active in that area. So presumably, the period of visitations that wraps up in 52 to 54, which might be, you know, take place over a very long, you know, galactic scale of time going all the way back to uh, when those original sightings were taken and the rock art uh, illustrations of them made, uh, they might have been making sure that there was no oil there. They'd be draining it all. Now, I don't want to, you know, say that these aliens uh, use dirty technology, but, you know, maybe they were even, you know, using it in their craft. I think probably they were just moving it somewhere else. They probably just send it across the border into Libya. Into Libya or selling it to Venusians. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. We can workshop that a bit more, but I think that this is, you know, all their attempt to, to keep their landing strip clear, which means that we don't have to put our adventure in the, the 50s, which is where gumshoe horror investigative games have, have a gap. Have a, have a hole for now. <laughs> have an inconvenient gap. But we can put that in the present day for esoterrorists and uh, have that be, uh, you know, this is, and if we're talking aliens, but we're talking esoterrorists, they're, you know, they're outer dark aliens, that they are the, the landing craft and all of the, the gray alien stuff is just the, the mask for an extra dimensional incursion, which I think would be a fun uh, sort of switcheroo to play is start off with, yeah, it's all about oil companies and there's UFO sightings and then, but, you know, really it's extra dimensional demons are planning to, you know, once the membrane gets torn apart in enough other places in the world, they need a nice stable place to hang out uh, to uh, once they all gather and, you know, to, to sort of stage their army. And so your whole point is to go in there and, and mess up their future plans for the big scale invasion. I think another possibility is that the so-called creps, the guys, the French guys that are out there eating sardines and setting off bombs, that sounds to me like a French 
bunch of investigators, maybe connected to the Operation Clode Delta Green that I proposed on in page XX, maybe independent anti-mythos guys, and they're going after Migo, right? Migo is what causes UFOs. Migo is, you know, they hang around uh, mountains and weird rocks, and the Migo have been out there digging up weird chemicals to take back to their Nissanian pentagram, and... The French are like, nope, we want the weird chemicals. We want the magic rock that's out there in the desert that the Tabalbalet magicians found and were buried by these, you know, powerful mages out in the, out in the desert. And what it is, that ring of, uh, watch faces is actually a ritual. And it's a, it's a ritual glyph that was built by dynamite to drive the Amigo away from that area so that the French could, in fact, exploit it. And it's hardly uh, the fault of the uh, secret group within Kreps that the French then lost the war in Algeria and were driven out with their tails between their legs in 1960. Uh, they had a couple of years, at least, to scour the area for magic chemicals or magic minerals. And then maybe the Algerian government got a hold of it. Maybe somebody else did. Maybe the local Touareg people, you know, brought it back and buried it back in that tumulus where it belongs. Who can say? I, I feel like it's it's glyphs and that the whole oil thing is a cover. Right. And of course, as you point out, that if something can be in the backstory of an adventure set today, it can also be in the backstory. Something happens in the 50s. It can be in the backstory of uh, Fall of Delta Green. So absolutely. Yeah. Your, your two options there. And I suppose even, you know, there could be if it's UFOs and the possibility of a landing, it could also be in sort of a more straight up UFO moon dust man right. sort of backstory. Exactly. Well, well I, I think this also brings something completely different to mind. So different that uh, I think people are going to have to look forward to episode 501 in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to do a gaming hut on using the Reddit, what is this forum? Because this is where this was originally posted before the Vox people got a hold of it. But this is basically, you know, it, it is what it says on the package, which is that people <laughs> post things and they go, what is this? And uh, it turns out that's a brilliant uh, thing to mine for instigating incidents for uh, modern horror scenarios. So in the Gaming Hut in 501, we're going to tackle that very subject. That's a bit of a teaser. But you may have noticed that if this is 499 and then in two weeks we're doing 501 next week, Ken, you know what number we're hitting next week? Uh, let's see. 499, 501. I was told there would be no math. Is it 500? 500. And you know what happens in episode 500? Lightning Lightning round! So we'll see you then, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Extend the gilded age of this podcast by joining such fashionable backers as... Noel Warford. Pedro Garcia. Jan Zaleski. Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover. And Ian Nistrom. Where the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrels of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>